Um, I think I'm going to hold this because at the 9 o'clock service, uh, I just kept coughing. And so uh, if I need to take a drink or like Gary said, um, I'll bring him up and he can finish it if, if that comes to that. Uh, but I am always so glad to be at Waterford, uh, mostly because I love Gary. I love, I love Gary. And do you all know that he turned 40 this week? Which is amazing because you've got the wisdom of a 60-year-old and the skin of a seven-year-old. And so I don't, I don't, I mean, it's just, it's, I love Gary. I'm so thankful for Gary. Um, and I do feel free when I'm here preaching because I know that I can just kind of throw it all out there. And then Gary at the benediction will come up and he'll take everything that I threw out there and he'll put it together and he'll put it in a little box and he'll tell you exactly what to do with whatever I say. And so cough medicine or not, I know Gary will clean it up for, uh, for me. Um, but I, I do. I love uh, being with y'all. Greetings from the Herndon people. Um, and, uh, and so I, this morning, I want to start uh, by asking you a question. Um, what will your marriage one day be? What will your marriage one day be? We all make choices based on what we believe will one day be. And, and if you're married or if you want to be married, you make choices right now based on whatever that picture is. Because how vivid the picture of what will one day be, how rigorous the fight in you for it. However vivid the picture of what will one day be, that's how much fight you have in you for it. Um, October, in my family, we call it Shocktober uh, because uh, we have three kids that have birthdays in October, and so planning kid birthdays are always crazy. And then on top of that, I end up officiating a lot of weddings in October because people think that October feels like today feels, but it doesn't ever. It's very hot. Um, uh, but, but I did four weddings this past October, so October is just a crazy time. But I love, I actually love doing weddings. It's, my, it's one of my favorite things that I get to do um, in my job. And, and what I love about weddings is that I get the best view. I get the best view of everyone. I get a view that nobody else gets except the groom. And the groom usually only gets this view once. And that is the view of standing at the, at the altar and then at the end of the long aisle, seeing the doors come open and the bride standing there looking beautiful, always looking beautiful, and looking straight at her groom and making her way slowly down that aisle. I love that view. And I love to look at her face because in your face, in her face, you can see hope for what will one day be. Now, if you are married, um, you know that that hope can turn to disappointment pretty quickly, sometimes as early as the honeymoon when things aren't going exactly how you thought and it's not as easy as you thought and you're not swinging from the chandeliers like your youth pastor promised you if you just waited. Um, you, you, you know the disappointment can come. Um, but what I love to tell couples uh, every time uh, when I do a wedding is I tell them your job, and, and when you make this commitment to one another, your job is to every day pray to God the Father and ask him to show you what he had in mind when he thought the other up. And then it's your job to speak those words over your spouse, to fight for them, especially when you're disappointed, especially when they failed, especially when they want to give up. Your job is to speak that hope over them, to have such a clear picture of what God had in mind when he thought them up that you can't help but speak those words over them. And that doesn't just go for our spouses. It goes for our children, for our parents, for our close friends. You and I, we are tasked with speaking hope over other people. And in marriage, God graciously gives someone to fight for who we really are. But the amount of fight we have in us directly connects to the vividness of that picture, of that picture that will one day be. 
I know I'm still married today because I have a wife who has a very vivid picture of marriage and a fairly accurate picture probably of what God had in mind when he thought me up. And so when others maybe would have walked away, she stayed and she fought. She fought because she had a picture. How vivid the picture of what will one day be is how rigorous the fight in you for it. We all make choices based on what we believe will one day be. And I think that's why Jesus spends so much time when he's on earth, when he's doing ministry, telling us evocative stories. That he's constantly painting pictures. He, he knew that we needed a truly vivid, a truly um, uh, captivating, a truly technicolor picture of what will one day be because we needed to have fight in us. He knew if we were going to be about kingdom, if we were going to be about it being on earth as it is in heaven, you and I would have to have a lot of fight in us. And so he told us stories. And as we're looking at these parables in, in Matthew 13, these kingdom parables, we'll see that he, he, he tells us all kinds of different stories. He doesn't just say the kingdom of God is and then gives a short kind of one-sentence pithy answer. God, Jesus never does that. You can read through all the Gospels. He never says the kingdom of God is. He, you know, H2O is water. Soylent green is people. All right, I didn't get a laugh at the, at the nine either. Okay, well, it's, it's a 70s movie. You should go watch it. Um, um, but... but he never just says it in a sentence. Why? The writer Flannery O'Connor was once asked if she could put the meaning of one of her stories in a sentence, and her response was, well, if I could tell the meaning in a sentence, I wouldn't need to write the story. And what she mean by that? Of course, she could have told them the meaning kind of of her story in one sentence, but she knew that the full impact that only can come through the narrative, the full impact on the imagination, on the heart and the mind and the emotions, it can never come through a single sentence. The kingdom of God is so important. It's so massive that it cannot be defined in one sentence without losing something. And so when Jesus is here, he tells us story after story after story. He's painting a picture because he knew how vivid that picture is, how rigorous the fight in us for it. So today we're going to look at one of those stories, the mustard seed. Um, like Gary said, we're in Matthew 13. Um, we're going to look at verses 31 and 32. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your bulletin. He then told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. This is God's word. So I'm going to start at the end of the parable. I'm going to start at that final picture that Jesus paints, because that's the picture of what will one day be. Jesus says, when a mustard seed is planted, the kingdom of God is like the greatest of trees in which all the birds of the air can come and make their nest. Now, Jesus was talking probably exclusively to a Jewish audience. He was talking probably exclusively to people who all looked the same, who all thought the same, who went to the same school growing up, who went to the same doctor. They were like all the same. And so he tells them this picture of what will one day be, even though what currently is, is not. And this image of, of a tree with all these nesting birds to, to his audience that was, again, exclusively Jewish, they would have immediately thought of some Old Testament passages because many of them had the Old Testament memorized. So they would have thought of Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel, it says that God would plant his people like a tree on a high mountain and that in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. There's a similar vision in, in the prophet Daniel where King Nebuchadnezzar dreams of birds coming to nest in a mighty tree. 
This is actually a pretty common image for, for the ancient times. When a mighty empire protected and sheltered weaker nations, it was commonly depicted as a great tree giving refuge to birds. So the people listening to Jesus would have immediately had this image in mind. They would have said, oh, so the kingdom of God is like this powerful, mighty, massive community that provides shelter and protection for others, especially weaker others. And again, his audience being primarily Jewish and a lot of ancient Jewish writings, whenever the phrase the birds of heaven comes up, it's referring to the Gentiles. So not only would they have had this picture, but they would have also said, wait a second, a shelter and a protection for those who we thought were on the outside. Those who, had, who, who were rejected by God. No, wait a second. The kingdom of God is this kingdom in which those who, who were once seen as rejects are brought in, that they find peace and shelter. Jesus is painting a picture that does not exist. He's talking to people who all look the same, think the same, act the same. And he says, no, no, the kingdom of God, even though it starts small, it will be this great tree in which all will find refuge in it. He's painting them a picture where no one group, nation, ethnicity is excluded. A kingdom in which, uh, in which there's refuge for all nations. A vast movement in which members from all over the place will find rest. And Jesus would reiterate this point right before his ascension. After his death and resurrection, he would go to his few followers at the time. And he would say to them, if you were here for our early Acts series, um, this is how the book of Acts starts. He looks at his few followers and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then a few days later, Peter would find himself preaching to a crowd uh, from people from all over the known world, people who spoke all kinds of different languages. He'd preach the very first Christian sermon. He'd tell them the gospel, and thousands of people would repent and believe and then take that message back home with them. Then within a decade or so, we see the Apostle Paul planting churches all over the known world. One theologian said in a few hundred years, the religion of a despised Nazarene, being Jesus, the religion which began in the upper chamber of Jerusalem had overrun this civilized world. So that picture that Jesus gave those few Jewish people was happening. It immediately started happening, and it's continuing to happen. Today we see the church exploding all over the place in, in parts of Asia and China and in South America and India. The church is growing in places of communism and Hinduism and Islam. People from all parts are finding shelter and protection and refuge in the kingdom of God. And Jesus painted that picture. He painted a picture that was worth fighting for. Now, originally, God dwelt with us, right? At the beginning of the story, we know God dwells in the garden with Adam and Eve. It's paradise. It's perfect. There's no decay or disease or death, no poverty, no injustice, no brokenness of any kind. Why? Because God dwelt with his people. Being in God's presence is the only way in which created things can flourish. You and I can only be all that God had in mind when he thought us up when we're in relationship with him, because that's what we were built for. We were built to be dependent on him. That's not a result of the fall. Our dependence isn't something that's a deficiency in us. No, God created us to need him. But that first story tells us we didn't want that. We said we, we want to decide for ourselves. We don't, we don't want to have to depend on you. We don't have to rely on you. We don't want to have to trust that you know best. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and evil, and, and this is the world we inherit. Um, and if our view of what will one day be is based on us looking around at the world around us, on watching the news, on scrolling Twitter. Um, I was at the beach for one of these weddings, 
And uh, whenever I'm at the beach, I have to see the sunrise. I just, I, if I'm at the beach, I want to see the sunrise. It doesn't matter how late I'm up the night before. Like, I'm going to be on the beach watching the sunrise. And so I was there, and I was waiting for the sun to come up. I'd gotten there a little bit too early, um, and so I get bored sitting there waiting for the sun. So what I do, I pull out my phone, and I start scrolling Twitter, um, and then just start getting so depressed. I mean, just like, oh, my gosh, that happened? No. Oh, man, he said, what? Oh, no. Like, this world, this world stinks. I hate it. And then all of a sudden, I look up, and that first little light, you know, comes through, and, and the sky starts to light up, and I'm, I'm just, like, in awe. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, this is amazing. This is beautiful. I can't believe I get to be alive here. I can't believe I get to live in this world. This is so awe-inspiring. And then, you know, it, it starts to move kind of slow, and I've taken it in, and I get a little bored. So what I do, I go back to my phone, and I start scrolling Twitter, and I'm like, I hate this place. Like, why? Like, this, this is off. This is a dumpster fire. Ah. And then I look back up, and it's, like, gotten a little brighter. I'm like, I can feel myself settling in. I can feel myself breathing again. I'm like, this, I'm so, I'm so fortunate to be alive, blessed. You know, like, I'm so happy. And then I get bored and I go back to my phone. And eventually I'm like, Zach, this is crazy. Stop looking at your phone. Put your phone away. Because every time I look at my phone, I'm reminded that everything's falling apart. Everything's decaying. Our pets' heads are falling off. Like, it's all getting bad. It's not getting any better. But when the presence of God re-enters the earth, Jesus says it's like a tree. It's like a tree where all birds can find rest and refuge and shelter. Jesus says the kingdom of God turns this world into the home our hearts most long for, a world cleansed of disease and decay and death and brokenness, a world in which everything that makes us cry is, is done away with. The kingdom of God, to use one of our value statements here at Summit, brings holistic salvation to all that is lost. God's salvation is a kingdom. God's salvation is personal because Jesus took your and my sins on the cross. You and I personally can stand before a holy God accepted, but God's salvation is also a kingdom. God's salvation isn't just about you, but it's about this world. God's salvation isn't just forgiving you so that one day you can go to heaven, although that is very true. It's much more than that. If you get to the end of the book, the last picture, the last picture that God gives us in his word of what will one day be, you don't see us as individuals escaping this world and going to heaven. What do you see? You see heaven coming down. You see it being made on earth as it is in heaven. You see Jesus standing there and looking at all the brokenness and all the tears and all the sadness and all the disease and the decay and all the division and him saying, look, I am making everything new. That's the picture. God's salvation is about saving souls and forgiving sins, but it's also about ridding the world of injustice and hunger and disease and death. And how vivid that picture is for us, how clearly we see that picture, how, how technicolor it is in our mind's eye, that's how rigorous the fight in us for it. God's salvation is a kingdom. That's why what we do matters. That's why it matters. It, it doesn't matter that we serve uh, in, in, our, in our city because somehow that earns us a better place with Jesus. No, Jesus did everything necessary to secure our personal salvation, but our local service, our service to other people matters because God's salvation is a kingdom. 
It's a kingdom that includes all people, that includes people that, that, that are on the outside, that have felt rejected. It includes people that are living in circumstances uh, that, are, that are just awful. It, it includes people who are often forgotten and weaker. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a World War II uh, pastor and theologian in Germany, said the ultimate test of a society's morality is how it treats its children. We live in a city with a lot of vulnerable children, a lot. And that's why as a church, we said, all right, we're gonna focus how we serve locally on vulnerable children. We're gonna come alongside the systems and the structures and the relationships that reach and serve these kids in our city. We really believe that that would be one of the best ways that you and I can be about the kingdom, that you and I can be about it being on earth as it is in heaven. And one of the main ways that we're doing that is, is, is by engaging the foster care system, which Gary already talked about. And we need to do that. In our city, two-thirds of the kids who are in foster homes move at least seven times. And the research shows that every move costs a child eight months' development. So if a kid moves seven times, that's five years lost. And those moves are avoidable mostly those moves happen because there's not enough places for them. There's not enough loving homes for them. They happen because 50% of people who, who start fostering, who go through all the training and, and get approved and all that, 50% of the people who start don't finish. They, 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 they don't last a whole year. They don't last past the first placement. Why? Because it's really hard. But that's why we as a church have, have developed uh, these care communities to come around families because the research also shows if a family has people around them that are fighting with them, fighting for them, that are praying for them, that are serving alongside them, that that number 50% goes to 90%. So it matters. It makes a huge difference. And this is so core to the heart of God. Psalm 68, 6 says, God sets the lonely in families. If you and I are serious about being a part of the kingdom, about being a, about what the kingdom is about, those kids matter. We've got to do something. And, and it's, it's more than even just being a part of one of these care communities. One of the things I've been praying for since we, since we started down this path um, is that by the end of 2020, and I really hope God does this, um, by the end of 2020, so a little more than a year from now, the 200 kids who are currently in our city who aren't in a home that don't have a place, they're, they're in a group home or some other situation that isn't a loving home, that isn't ideal, that the 200 kids in our city would be in a loving home. And that will happen as we get around these foster families, but it also happen as some of us open our homes. In a church our size, in Summit, across our campuses, there's a couple thousand people. In a church our size, we should not have a city where 200 kids tonight will go to bed not in a loving home. It matters. It matters to be about this. You should stay for lunch after. You're getting a free lunch, right? You should stay and hear more about this. In our city, also one in five children lives in poverty. This means one out of every five kids that we encounter in our city, they're in constant danger. Because statistics and research shows that the kids who grew up in poverty don't have access to as good of education or health care. It also, they have an increased risk of going to prison. It matters what we do in this. It matters that we come alongside these children. It matters because God's salvation is a kingdom. Because you and I, we've been given a picture of what will one day 
be. And how clear or vivid that picture is, how rigorous the fight in, it, in us for it. If you've been listening over the last uh, year and a half or so, uh, you might have heard things like this. Um, you might have heard our lead pastor talk about uh, Summit Church uh, becoming a multi-ethnic church. Um, and this is really based on a picture more of what, what will one day be than what currently is. Although, Waterford, y'all are definitely our most diverse campus out of all of them. Um, so, woohoo! Um, but, 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 um, but we really, just like Jesus talking to those Jewish people who were all the same and thought the same, this is a picture we believe is what will be. It's how the Bible ends. It's this picture of people of all different races and, and socioeconomic classes and, and all, all different types of people coming before and worshiping Jesus. And we think it's worth fighting for that. But we also know if we're going to be about vulnerable children in our city, this is an important part of us being able to do that well. When you take the poverty rate and you add race to the equation, the danger level for these kids skyrockets. Dr. Marion Elderman says the most dangerous place for a child to grow up today is at the intersection of race and poverty. So we, as a church who wants to be about vulnerable children, have to talk about race. We have to be a church that values diversity. We have to be a church that is moving towards a more multi-ethnic expression of the local church. We should be a church that's committed to looking a lot more like the city that God's called us to, that that, 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 that is what our goal should be. We live in a city that's only 61% white and our church is 84% white. And so it, it's gonna take some time. It's gonna take some work. And the first time we talked about this was, uh, was John on Vision Sunday 2018. And you might've thought, Nala's changed in then. Maybe we've kind of moved away from that. Maybe we kind of gave up on that. It's not. It's not true. We as a staff have been getting on our knees and praying and asking God to give us such a clear picture and, and how to move well forward. Um, we as a staff um, have all gone through a cultural competency assessment and then brought people in to kind of help us understand what that means and, and, and what our results show. Every member on staff is a part of a little cohort that gets together and we're reading books about faith and race and talking about them. I just read a book uh, called White Awake um, by, um, by a pastor, a white guy like me, and uh, uh, his name's Daniel Hill, and it was a really hard book to read, um, but I'm so glad that I did. And um, he, uh, he got this picture of this church that, that, that's painted in Revelation, and, and he said, I want to I wanna be a part of like making a church that looks more like that. And he was part of Willow Creek up in Chicago, that huge church in Chicago. So he went to plant a church in urban Chicago, um, and he ended up uh, planting an all-white church in urban Chicago. Uh, and so he wrote this book, White Awake, to kind of talk about what he learned through that process. And if you are white and you go here, I would love for you to read that book. Um, and then let's go to coffee or grab beer and go to coffee and talk about it. Um, but one of the things that really struck me um, in the book was his definition of privilege. He says, privilege is being able to walk away from the conversation on race. My white brothers and sisters in Christ... Our black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ can't walk away from the conversation on race. So how can we not stay in it with them? We have to engage in this conversation. And if you are not white and you go here, um, I want to tell you, thank you. 
I'm so glad that you're here. In fact, one of the things I feel like I've been learning over the last year um, is I've been, you know, trying to understand uh, more about myself and, and, you know, my prejudices and all that is I've learned that it actually, if you're non-white and you go to Summit, it costs you to be here in a way that I didn't know, in a way that it doesn't cost white people to be here. Um, And so I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, And I know... um, I know there might be some pushback on this, um, and, uh, and I told my Herndon people uh, when I did this that I'm not checking my email today. I'll check it on Monday, um, but you can email Gary today. I don't care um, if you email <laughs> Gary today. Um, but uh, I didn't actually get any pushback uh, from Herndon, um, so challenge accepted, guys. Um, uh, um, but I know what the pushback will be, and, and I, I get it. Um, the, the pushback will be, I just feel like as a church, we're heading in a direction that is not the core, that isn't the gospel. I feel like we're, we're, we're delving kind of away from the gospel. And my response to that is, no, we're not. As Summit Leadership, we are committed to the gospel. We believe that we are so sinful that the Son of God had to come and, and pay for our sins on the cross and, the, and we're so loved that he wanted to do it. We believe that Jesus' death and resurrection is what makes us acceptable for a holy God. And in fact, it's that belief in the gospel that frees us to actually have this conversation. Because we're the only, our belief system is the only one that says we're the problem. It's us. To believe the gospel, you have to start by admitting you're the problem. You're part of the problem. You're the reason that the systems and the structures are, are made the way they are. You and, I, you and I can openly admit our prejudices and our biases and how we've played into injustice. We are free to do that because of the gospel. So you and I, we can engage in this conversation in a way that the rest of the world, which is having this conversation at nauseum, we can engage at it in a way that actually is hopeful, that actually brings about the kingdom of God. And as a church, we have to do that. We have to talk about this. Tim Keller says there's a direct relationship between a person's grasp and experience of God's grace and his or her heart for justice and the poor. And I would add racial reconciliation. But this is slow. And Jesus knew the kingdom was gonna be slow. That's why he told us this parable. He told us a parable about a tree that started as a seed, as a mustard seed. So most of the growth of the kingdom happened underground, happened, uh, nobody saw it. It was hidden from view. The kingdom of God is like that. Jesus gives us this final picture of this great tree, but he starts with a seed. So that you and I, when we're discouraged, when we've stepped in it, when we've done the wrong thing, when we feel like there's no movement, when we feel like this isn't going anywhere, you and I can remember, no, no, no. There's a tree coming. The work of the gospel is often unseen. It's often hidden. Yet little by little, it is constantly growing. It grows every time someone realizes they can't do life on their own and they turn to Jesus as Savior. It grows every time one of our little boys or girls in base camp says, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. It grows every time in 33rd Street and 33rd Street Jail when we, when we come in there and we have church in there and someone realizes I matter to God and not only do I matter to God, but I'm in this place right now and I can be about kingdom work in this circumstance. It matters every time we show up at a baseball game, maybe at East River, um, and cheer for kids that aren't our own just so that they know that they matter. It matters every time you and I stay in a conversation on race that gets real uncomfortable or where we get offended, but we stay in it. 
The work of the kingdom of God is not always seen, but it's always growing. The tree is not some mythical tree. It is happening. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all seeds. Kind of working backwards here, uh, but this is it. I'm wrapping up. This is the end. The mustard seed is small. The kingdom starts small. Kingdom work always starts small. This isn't about doing something huge and majorly different. It's about taking a small but radical step towards the kingdom. Taking a small step in establishing his kingdom, God started small, literally, a single cell. And how significant it must have seemed at the time. A a pregnancy conceived out of wedlock in a backwater town in Galilee, a kid growing up being called all kinds of names and saying, hey, you don't even know who your dad is. How does anything good come from Nazareth? A kid growing up in poverty, overlooked by society, working in obscurity in the family business for his first 30 years, and then all of a sudden being thrust on the public stage, being this miracle worker and itinerant preacher in which everyone wants something from him until they don't, until the tide turns against him. And then all of a sudden he dies a criminal's death and his followers who were so few in number and feeble in faith run away the minute there's trouble. This was the seed of God's salvation. No one would have guessed it. One theologian said, if ever there was a religion which was a little grain of seed at its beginning, that religion was the gospel. And yet from that small and seemingly insignificant first step, From that first beginning, the kingdom of God grows. So whenever we get discouraged, whenever we think what we do doesn't matter, no, one small step. That's it. Kingdom work always starts small. Jesus has given us a vivid picture of what will one day be. And the crazy thing is, he's the one who actually did the fighting. Jesus is the definition of privilege. Deserved privilege. God deserves all the glory and all the honor, and yet he didn't walk away when it got tough. In fact, Jesus on the cross was fighting for who you and I will one day be. So what's he asking you to fight for? What small step can you take? Maybe you don't have a clear enough picture. Maybe you're just like, I just, I'm not feeling it. I don't have, it's because you don't have the picture. When we started praying a couple years ago about what we should do as a church as far as like God's placed us here in this city, like what would it be for us to be all in about this kingdom? At first we were just praying and we didn't know, but but God every uh, step of the way has given us a more and more clear picture where we can't help but move forward. So if you don't have a clear picture, it starts with just praying and asking for it. So it's just like, God, just show me a picture of what will one day be. And I promise you, he'll give you a picture worth fighting for. And maybe it's taking a step into the foster care system, either through a care community or even opening your home. Or maybe it's, it's, it's coming alongside East River or, or, it's, uh, or, it's, or it's maybe even just reading Wide Awake, just being open uh, to, to, be, to wrestle with some things. But take a step, a small step. Kingdom work always starts small. And you and I, we can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in us will complete it in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for uh, your word. 
uh, which does paint us a picture that we aren't left to try to figure out on our own uh, what will one day be. You've painted the picture in so many different ways. And so, Father, would you uh, continue to, to move in our hearts, to, to embed that picture uh, so deeply in our hearts that we can't help but act? And, Father, we thank you so much uh, for the ultimate picture of Jesus, of him giving himself completely away for us of him becoming all of our sin, all of the ways that we have participated in sin. He became all of that so that we could move into newness of life, so that we could experience resurrection. And so, Father, help us be people who call out resurrection in this world, who pray as you taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, to make it on earth as it is in heaven. Make us people who boldly pray that prayer. And we pray all of this in our Savior's name, in Jesus Christ's name, amen.